we are going to be diving into the book of James tonight. Before we get there, I would love to uh, just take a moment to pray uh, because uh, I'm teaching and that could be scary. So let's pray and ask for God's help tonight. God, uh, we thank you for this opportunity to be together. God, we thank you for this beautiful room uh, and the people who have taken time out of their Tuesday night to be here, to sing praises to you, to build community with each other, and to learn from your word. God, I pray that you'd be with me as I teach, uh, that the words that I bring would be helpful, uh, and that they would change lives. God, we thank you for Jesus, who we love. We pray this in his name. Amen. I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to be here with you tonight, although you had nothing to say about it, so I guess uh, you don't deserve the thanks. Paul probably does. He's in Ethiopia right now or somewhere between Ethiopia and here. I'm not sure. Uh, And he asked me to continue in the book of James with you. Uh, I asked Jed earlier today if he did any background work on James. He said a little bit. uh, So if you've already heard this, I'm sorry, but we're going to get into it. Because James is one of my favorite books in the Bible. I think it's one of the most interesting books in the Bible. Uh, It's short, and it's been stuck at the end of the uh, New Testament. And frankly, that's because for much of church history, no one has really known what to do with the book of James. Uh, And the further we get away from the original Jewish context in which it was written, the harder it is to make much sense of it. Uh, And we're 2,000 years removed now. It's hard to get much further away. Uh, It's so hard to wrestle with it. Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther, the guy that lived 500 years ago and started the Protestant Reformation, uh, he called it the Epistle of Straw, and he struggled to understand what to make, how to make sense of it, because it so strongly emphasizes doing and works. And if you know anything about Martin Luther, he was all about faith and grace. And so when he came to the book of James, he was really confused about it. In fact, uh, he said that he thought that everything that it advocated for would be burned up like straw on the day of judgment. And he actually advocated for it to be thrown out of the canon of the scripture. That's a cool story, I think. Now, I'm also a pastoral nerd, so maybe you don't follow me. But uh, why? What's the deal with this letter? Well, I think we have to understand who James is before we can deal with that. So who's James? He's the younger brother of Jesus. Uh, And as you can imagine, having little brothers when you're trying to be Jesus is probably not easy, right? Like every time you try to do something with some authority, they're like, Jed, what's it like when Eli, you know, Eli rolls his eyes at you, right? It happens. Jesus said, in fact, uh, in Mark chapter 6, a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his own relatives, and in his own house. Who is he talking about? He's talking about James and his other little brothers, right? He also, there's a story in Mark chapter 3 where Jesus is out doing ministry and the family gets word that Jesus is out there doing some strange things and they come to get him. And what it says is his own family heard about this. They went to take charge of him and they told everybody, don't worry, he's out of his mind. That's what his own family said about Jesus. And this includes James. You can imagine what it would be like to be a little brother who has an older brother who everyone claims is the Messiah. That's probably going to be a little awkward, right? Just a little bit. Uh, It was widely believed that James was actually not a believer in Jesus at the time that Jesus was crucified. Um, Now, there are two James that are listed in Jesus' crew of disciples, right? Uh, One of those James is the brother of John, James and John, the sons of thunder. Now, that's John that wrote the Gospel of John, John 1, 2, and 3, and the book of Revelation. There's another James 
that was the brother of Matthew, who wrote the Gospel of Matthew. But neither of those, those Jameses is this James. James was not part of the crew. James did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, James thought Jesus was a little crazy, and he wished he would just come home and take care of his family. Now, the Bible uh, gives us an interesting clue into the family dynamics there because when Jesus is on the cross, right, his last moments before he's dying, one of the last moments of business that he deals with is what's going to happen to his mom and his family. Jesus lives in a society in which the oldest son, if the father is gone, is responsible for caring for the family. And as he's dying, he knows this is something he needs to deal with. And you'd think he's got brothers, including James. He could give it to them, but he doesn't. He says to his best friend, John, you're in charge now. Now, the Bible doesn't say what happened to Joseph, Joseph and Mary. Joseph would have been the father of the family. Uh, but tradition says that he died when uh, the boys and the sisters were young, which lines up with this moment in the cross that Jesus, as the oldest son, remember Mary, when she became pregnant with Jesus, was very young, probably 13 years old. Jesus was the oldest son in the family. Uh, and so if Joseph dies, now Jesus is the man of the house, and now here he is on the cross dying. And he hands over responsibility, not to James, his little brother, who would be the natural one, but instead to his friend. Now, the problem is, is that they've been dismissing him in his ministry all the time, and Jesus does not want to entrust his mother to them. Uh, so how do we go from James, who has no faith in Jesus, and in fact seems to be a little bit embarrassed by him, to having him be included in the scriptures as part of our canon over thousands of years. How does that happen? Well, 1 Corinthians uh, gives us a clue. You can go there if you want. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul tells us about what happens when Jesus rises from the dead, and he begins to appear to people. And I'm going to read it to you. Here's what he says. Paul says, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Jesus died, and he was raised. And then he appeared, first to Peter, and then to the rest of the disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at the same time, a large group appearance. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the rest of the apostles, and then to me, Paul. Something very significant happened to James between the death of Jesus and him that we see writing this letter. What was it? He encountered the risen Christ. Now that, that's an incredible thing to have happen to anyone, but I want you to imagine for a moment that James encounters the risen Jesus, his own brother, the boy that he grew up with. The one that he probably wrestled with in the whatever Middle Eastern version of a living room there was back then. They kicked a ball around in the street together. And now he comes to the realization that he is actually who he said he was. He had been around him. He had heard of the miracles. He had heard the teaching. He had heard the claims of everyone, and yet he never believed. I think it's a good reminder for us that you can know Jesus, you can be overly familiar with him, you can know the stories about him, you could have read about him in your Bible, but if you've never had an encounter with the risen Jesus, your life will not change. 
I think James is also a demonstration for us that once you do have that encounter, there is absolutely no turning back. One true, unvarnished glimpse of Jesus changed everything for him. It changed everything for me. And it can change everything for you. Now, for the decade following Jesus' death, Peter is the head of the church in Jerusalem. He's the head of the Jewish church there. But Peter is uh, arrested And when he eventually gets out of prison, the scripture doesn't tell us exactly what happens, but it says that he leaves to go to another place. It doesn't tell us where or particularly why, but that he leaves Jerusalem. And in his wake, James, the brother of Jesus, who now has faith in the risen Messiah, becomes the head of the Jewish church in Jerusalem. Now, what we have to remember, being this far removed from this story and being Western Uh, non-Jewish people, is that Christians in that time did not see Judaism as being uh, separate from Christianity. In fact, they saw their Judaism as being fulfilled in their Christianity. They saw the promise that they'd been waiting for actually being fulfilled in their story. And so to understand James, we really have to understand the story that he lived his entire life in, that his whole culture lived in. The story was that God created the image of God, humanity, to represent himself to the world. And then the image of God rejected him and became a broken and distorted image when they rejected God. The story went on to say that God then reestablished a relationship with humanity through a man called Abraham, and he made a promise that he said, your family, Abraham, will become the new image of God in the world. You will represent me to the world. They said, if you devote yourself wholly to me, if you give your whole heart to me, if you love your neighbor as yourself as a reflection of your love for me, then you can be the true image of God in the world. But of course, they break that and distort that image and reject God throughout the entire history of that family. God gives them laws to shape them and teach them how to live as a faithful image, and they reject the laws. He gives them kings and judges to lead them as faithful images of God in the world, and they rebel against their kings and their judges. He gives them priests to restore them when they've rebelled against God, and they continue to rebel against him. Finally, he gives them prophets to tell of a coming king who someday will reign and restore the true image of God in humanity. And all Jews that were believing Jews at this time believed the story up till that point. We all, they all agreed. Now the difference is that Christians believed that Jesus was that long-promised hope that the prophets said would come to set everything right. That he was the perfect image of God that he was faithful and obedient to his father, that he was wholly devoted to him, that he loved him, that he loved his neighbor as himself, and he perfectly reflected his father's love. They believed that everywhere he went, he was pushing back the effects of the broken image in the world. And then humanity, in the pinnacle of its rejection of God, kills him. But Jesus' death is a triumph. What humanity intended for evil, God used to begin to heal humanity. His death, the death of the innocent one, was the place that God poured out the stored-up wrath that he had for humanity. You have to remember generations and generations and generations of humanity had rejected God and were destroying the world that he loved. 
the place that he lovingly made. They were tearing apart the people that he loved. Murder, destruction, slander, malice, cruelty, and all that anger and all that rage and all that justice that God desired to see come to his world broke into our reality and poured out on Jesus. They saw that this was the fulfillment of their story, but then the long-promised healing of the world broke into our reality as Jesus rose to the dead. And we have to be clear, Jesus did not just wake up from a coma. He didn't get restored to life in his old body. Instead, he was raised to new life. What he was was a taste of a new fixed creation here on earth. The long promise of healing of the world was here. And it was a triumph over the worst that death had to offer and that he brought new life. The promise that was made to Abraham a long time ago that they would be the true image of God and that they would represent God perfectly to the world had now happened in Jesus. It exploded into our world through tongues of fire which brought life and salvation to all who would believe. Now, this was the story that James grew up in and that he believed and had a deep understanding of now that he had come face-to-face with Jesus. This was the story that made sense of the world around him. And if it was true, and if Jesus was the one that God had promised, the one who was going to fix everything, then everything had to change. It meant that everyone who was united with Jesus in faith they were now part of this new creation. That if, that if you love Jesus and you called him king and you trusted in him, then you were going to be remade into the image of God that God originally intended humanity to be. It's the logical conclusion of the story. And so when we come to James and we hear James talking about what the church should look like, he's trying to communicate to the church that we should be the image of God that God intended humanity to be. And that looks a very specific way. If you would, go with me to Matthew chapter 22. It actually might be up on the screen. Uh, There's a moment in the Gospels uh, where Jesus is before some of the leaders of uh, the faith there in Jerusalem And he addresses them. And here's what he says in Matthew chapter 22, starting in verse 34. He says, Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. So one one group of leaders had been shut up by what Jesus said. And so another group of them says, okay, we're going to try a different attack on him. And he said, one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with a question. He said, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? God gave us laws to shape us as the image of God on earth. Which one's the best one? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and all of the prophets hang on these two commandments. Everything in the scriptures that we have lived under under God is trying to do two things. Number one, get us to love God and image him to our neighbors. So that when the world comes in contact with me, they see God. That's what a faithful image bearer, that's what a faithful image of God looks like. And what James is saying is that if this thing is real... 
If the, if the new creation really is breaking in, if we're truly empowered by the Spirit, if we've really been united with Christ in faith, then we have to be fulfilling our calling as the image of God as we follow Jesus, the faithful image of God. The faith of the church is demonstrated in our commitment to being the faithful image of God in the world. And that faithfulness is summed up by two commandments. Love God, love your neighbor. And James is hard line about it. He does not pull a lot of punches in his letter. It's short and it's to the point. Your faith is merely words unless it's shaping you into the image of God that you were created to be. Your faith means nothing unless it's actually transforming you. In chapter 1, which I'm guessing Paul addressed with you maybe the last time you were together, he says, Whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. If you look into the law that will shape us into the image of God we were designed to be, and you don't just hear it, you do it, you'll be blessed. Action validates faith. You can claim whatever you want, but your life will define what you really believe. And Jesus saves, yes, we believe that, but he's never saved anyone without the intention of changing them. With this backdrop in mind, let's finally get to the part that I was supposed to teach, chapter 2. Uh, James chapter 2. Here's how uh, James opens this chapter. He says, My brothers and sisters, believers in the glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Before we move on, I'm trying to imagine my little brother Lance speaking of me this way. This is a transformed man, right? Okay, let's start over. My brothers and sisters, believers in my, my brother, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit on the floor by my feet, have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? I think the, the question that stands out on this is, judges with evil thoughts, like what, what are the thoughts that are so evil? It, it seems like that's the question that is begged. The guys... Um, tease me because I grew up in the 70s and 80s and I'm slightly obsessed with Star Wars. Uh, and so they asked me, they literally asked me today, hey, so are you going to have a Star Wars reference in your sermon? I was like, no, no, not this time. And then I finished all my notes and I was reading th through them right before I came up and I was like, actually, this would be a really good spot. So uh, in The Empire Strikes Back, uh, there's a moment. Now, it's really hard because these, these characters are like icons of American society now, so it's hard to remember what this was like, but there was a moment when this movie was brand new, and it was very shocking, that Luke hears from his mentor, Obi-Wan Kenobi, that there's a great Jedi master that can train him in the swamp planet of Dagobah. Uh, his name is Yoda. See, now you already know who Yoda is, right? Everybody, you kind of go, oh yeah, the little green guy that talks funny. See, we didn't know in 1980. We had no idea. And neither did Luke. So Luke shows up on the swamp planet, and he runs into this little two-foot-tall, funny-talking, hairy, big-eared green guy, 
and he says, I'm looking for the Jedi Master Yoda. And Yoda puts on this kind of show for him. And Luke is exasperated with Yoda. He, has, he barely has any time for him because all, he's judging Yoda based on his, what his expectations are. And his value proposition for Yoda is, you are not worth anything. Let me get to the person who can offer me what I really need, which is training and expertise. And you're clearly not it. So do I really have to go in your dumb little hut and have your stew? Yes, he did, because Yoda turns out to be, surprise, surprise, the Jedi Master, the little green guy. Okay, so what, what are the evil thoughts that James is saying that we address people with? It's the same thing that Luke was doing to Yoda. It's assigning value and importance based on appearance of the people we run into. He has a mistaken definition of value in God's economy. James is addressing the church, uh, but aren't we all tempted to do this when we encounter people? We assess people and we quickly try to figure out who exactly is going to benefit me personally the most in every given situation we run into. Now, here's the truth of what James is trying to get us to understand. If our heart is fully devoted and focused on God. If we love God like the commandment says, as a faithful image bearer, then we are free because everything we need comes from him. Therefore, people can be a focus of love instead of need. If I don't need anything from the people I come in contact with, then I can be free to love each person with freedom. I can love them equally and individually because I don't need anything from them. Now, maybe you hear this story and you go, money, like giving the best spot to the guy with money, like money doesn't mean anything to me. I'm advanced and like I'm a deep thinker. I don't, money doesn't matter. Okay, great. That might be true. Maybe you grew up poor and so you have an aversion to money. Maybe your uncle McScrooge was really rich and it turned you off to people with money. Okay, great. But what James is trying to do here is put his finger on losing your wholehearted devotion to God. Their eyes were going to a different prize, something that they could trust that would reorder their hearts. So instead of seeing other people as image bearers of God, they became objects that I can categorize and stratify. And the most valuable ones can be sifted easily to the top. The ones who might be valuable to me right now because of the way they look or might be valuable to me someday because of the connections that they might have. They might be able to offer me something do you do that? I mean, I, I'm going to admit, I know I do this. I know I do this. And, but it's not around money. I'm going to be a little bit transparent with you. For me, I serve a different idol. Comfort. You can probably tell by looking at me. I'm very comfortable. <laughs> Freddie, Freddie told me he was doing a 90-day challenge, and he could pick anything to do for 90 days. He chose running. I said I would choose eating a taco. <laughs> Seemed like it makes sense. Uh, I, I like comfort. And so... I will sort people not by the value that they can give me financially, but who's going to make me comfortable, okay? Who thinks the same way I do, who values the same things I do, who likes the same things I like, who votes the way that I vote, who posts the way that I post, who hashtags the things I hashtag. I don't have room for people who make me uncomfortable and who inconvenience me and make me feel awkward. Does anyone else... Feel like they do that sometimes? 
Here's, here's what James says about this issue, continuing in verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has God not chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love them? But you've dishonored the poor. Isn't it the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? It's like being in high school and all you want to do is be accepted by the popular kids and yet the popular kids are the same ones who make fun of and make life miserable for my friends. (laughs) And yet I want to ingratiate myself to them. I'm 40, I don't remember if that's actually true, but, you know, close enough. Um, What James is doing here is he's reiterating his big brother. Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus, and in turn James, are pointing to the heart of God. Who does God value? Who does God pursue? The very people you have determined don't serve your needs. The poor, the outsider, the awkward, the marginalized, the weird, the one who has nothing to offer by the value system of the world, and let's be honest, by your value system, by my value system. The very people that when we functionally interact with them, we turn away from and we give the seat of honor to someone that we've deemed as valuable. James continues in verse 8 and he says, If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, and then he defines the royal law, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin. And you're convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said you shall not commit adultery also said you should not commit murder. If you don't commit adultery but you do commit murder, you've become a lawbreaker. You don't have to break all of the law to be a lawbreaker. Just break any of the law. He says, speak and act. As those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. For mercy triumphs over judgment. The royal law, the one that defines us as part of the kingdom of God, is not our spoken love of God. It is our acted love for our neighbor because it proves and it gives legs to the confession of our love for our Father. Notice he does not go to, you have to love God. He says you have to love your neighbor. Why? Because it's easy to say, I love God. It's hard to love my neighbor. And if we've shown favoritism, if we judge people based on the value they offer us, then we're breaking the very heart of the law of God. God's commands on our life have to hold deep sway over us if we are people who claim to be committed to our King Jesus and in the freedom found in the gospel we must speak and act as those people who are going to be judged by the law who gives freedom. And James ends his thought with a call to mercy that triumphs over judgment and he echoes Jesus once again who said do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. If we're to live into our calling as true images of God, as those who are being transformed into the likeness of our Savior, then we have to fight and pursue for the heart of God. We have to remember the gospel 
that when you were far from him, when you were his enemy, when you were at war with him, when you had nothing to offer, when you were without claim, when you raged against his love, when you cursed his reign over the world, he did not judge you based on your value or your worth. He did not mete out his love or his care upon you based on your perceived value. Instead, he loved you in spite of you. He rescued you when you did not want rescue. He laid down his life to save you when you wanted nothing to do with him. There's a French monk that lived about 900 years ago. And his name was St. Bernard of Clairvaux. It's French, I'm guessing that's how he said it. And here's what he said. If God didn't love his enemies, he would have no friends. If God didn't love his enemies, he would have no friends. I would restate it this way for the purposes of our conversation tonight. If God only loved those who brought value to him, he would have no one to love. When we begin to determine in our own hearts and in our own minds who is valuable, who deserves a spot at the table, who is worthy of my attention, then we reject the true gospel and we substitute it for one of our own making. I want to encourage you tonight to ask yourself the honest question, who have you determined is outside of the gospel that you've written for yourself? Who doesn't make the cut in your gospel? Who do you reject? Who do you avoid? Who do you dismiss as being unworthy of the gospel that you have claimed to have received? The gospel that welcomed us without merit. The gospel that found us without cause. The gospel that saved a wretch like me. Let's pray and have the guys come and continue leading us in worship. God, we thank you so much for James. We thank you for the work that you did in his life to bring him to faith in you. We thank you for his willingness to speak out and to call us to account as people who claim to love you. God, we desire to be image bearers of yours in the world. God, we, we desire to be the humanity you've made us to be, and yet we fully admit that we are incapable and powerless to do it on our own. God, we pray that through the Holy Spirit in our lives that we would be transformed every day to look more and more like Jesus, who we love. We pray this in his name. Amen.